Hey guys, this is the Real Life Monopoly Podcast. This is your co-host, Jeffrey Donis, alongside my partners and brothers, Kenneth and Kerwin Donis. We are real estate investors, and the point of our podcast is to help you reach your financial goals, which will allow you to have time to focus on your true passion so that you can live not only a happier, but more fulfilled life. Enjoy the show. Hey guys, today we'll be having Kyle Marcotte out of Texas. Kyle is a former D1 soccer player, and he now owns 119 units Kyle is only 22 years old and obviously started real estate when he was very young, so we were very excited to have him, and without further ado, let's get right to it. Hey guys, welcome to the show. This is your co-host, Jeffrey Donis, alongside my two brothers, Kerwin and Kenneth Donis. Today on the show, we will be having Kyle Marcotte out of Austin, Texas. Kyle, do you mind introducing yourself to the audience? Awesome, yeah. So background on me, I'm 22. Um, I am a multifamily syndicator. I have 119 units of multifamily at this point in time. I was a soccer player at UC Davis um, studying pre-med and doing all that good stuff. In my sophomore year, I dropped out to pursue multifamily. I just wasn't really satisfied with the school path. It wasn't for me and the way I looked at things and how I thought didn't really reward my strengths. Um, So I went on a new path and tried to make this entrepreneurial thing work out and after you know several months of no results and just a lot of hard work, I got pretty lucky and did a 107-unit syndication in Louisville and then a 12-unit syndication in uh, Atlanta, and now I'm working on a 42-unit a syndication in Austin and hoping to stay in Austin and continue to do deals in Austin going forward. I know that you had mentioned that you played soccer in college, and I actually did some research on your story uh, on your website, and I saw that the book that kind of launched your journey was the, the Rich Dad Poor Dad book. Do you mind kind of going into what that book taught you and, and how it was the thing that launched your journey? Because just to be honest with you, that was the book that we all read first. And uh, I've met a lot of people that have had the same experience with it. Yeah, man, I think for me, it was just the idea that you weren't shackled to this job or this cycle of like trading your time for money, having to clock in and work a certain amount of hours for a certain amount of money. Because that formula just falls apart. If you just even think about it mathematically, like how am I going to have enough money to retire at some point? If you're not investing money, like if you're just, even if you're making a very good W2 salary, the more you make, the more you get taxed, the higher your tax bracket goes up and the math just doesn't make sense. And you start getting stressed out. Like, man, if everything goes well and I get this job that I really want and I get promoted and my salary increases, I'm just going to end up paying more in taxes. I'm not really building any long-term wealth. I'm never really going to have the lifestyle that I'm hoping to have. And I'm going to be working my face off for someone else and making them rich and making them have the lifestyle they want. And so it doesn't really make sense to, to you on your face if you think about it for a long time. And then that book says like, oh, well, that's because you're doing the wrong exchange. You're trading time for money. You can start actually making time independent of your money by either if you're doing a product business, just selling products that independent of your time, or if you're doing real estate, that property collecting rent independent of your time and also appreciating independent of your time and paying down your principal independent of your time. So then you're starting to have things make money and that you can stack on each other while you're not working. Um, so then, or while you're not actively working. So then it's um, the formula starts making more sense. And then you can kind of see how that would give you the lifestyle you you were looking for, or at least the freedom and independence that you were looking for. And so that's why I was like, oh, this is a whole new way of looking at stuff. You kind of had the similar you know, thought process you know, being a student, I believe you dropped out when you were a sophomore. Is that right? Yeah. Sophomore year. Yeah. So a lot of people that I've talked to, a lot of my friends, it's something that's really scary. What do you think holds people back and what was holding you back? If there was something that was, that you kind of had to overcome. 
Yeah, I think it's two things. Number one is not thinking about your current situation and its reality and realizing that it's you're not really understanding how pain, how much pain you're in and potentially, or maybe your situation is just not painful enough and then it's not propelling you to move. But for me, my situation was really painful and I spent the time like lamenting and actually meditating on how much I didn't like the situation I was in instead of just pushing it under the rug and um, kind of running from those feelings. But realizing like, if I only really have one shot at this, I want to make my life um, a little better than it is currently, like, come on. <laughs> and like a lot of people just get satisfied or they give in to that feeling and say like, well, yeah, man, uh, my life's always going to be not that good. And they just kind of, and they kind of like, just, you know, submit to that. And I don't know, luck or grace or whatever you want to say. I just, for some reason, that wasn't going to be what I wanted. I wanted something more for my life. I didn't want to, I didn't, I wasn't comfortable with how much my life was not going the way I wanted, but then also realizing that you're going to experience pain and suffering and, and disappointment and adversity, no matter what you choose. And it all scales proportional to your level of responsibility that you take on currently. So for example, if you're a shoe salesman at Foot Locker, you have X amount of responsibility that you're used to. And so let's say your worst day on the job is the shipment doesn't come in of like size 10 Air Force Ones, a popular shoe, a popular size. And everyone comes in like, dude, I want Air Force Ones size 10. Where the heck are they? And you're like, dude, oh, the shipment didn't come in. It's not my fault. And then everyone's like cussing you out and saying like, dude, I wanted those shoes. We're going to go buy for your competitor. And that's like your worst day. And that's not a bad day for someone who's like a, you know, a venture capitalist who makes billions of dollars. Like to them, their proportional stress levels are so much like they could handle that easily. But for you, your current level of experience is such that that is the top realm of your threshold of pain. So like for you, that's a horrible day. Like that is equally as painful as a venture capitalist losing a billion dollars because that's at the top level of your pain threshold. So like you're going to experience pain and it's going to be in proportion to the levels that you can handle. So it scales over time as you take on more responsibility. So you're never escaping pain. And so you might as well go and try to do something that you really want to do because you're going to experience proportional levels of pain. Like as you take on more responsibility, you'll get a higher threshold. So it'll feel basically the same as those lower level jobs that you would settle for so I guess like the escapism thought of like, oh, if I just stay here, I'll be fine. Like, no, you're not going to be fine. You're going to be equally as suffering as if you went for it. So like, go for it. To kind of touch on that, though, as some people would say, both scenarios, there's uh, difficulties, um, but they're both going to be equally as difficult. So, I mean, you can live your life choosing the one that you think is easiest, but choose your difficulty, you know? Yeah, absolutely. But honestly, like yeah, that difficulty... And- it it still remains like the the same. Like it actually is equal difficult, even though like objectively it's different. Subjectively, your experience to it is the same because you have like for example, lifting twenty pounds for you right. when you first start lifting weights is like brutal. But then after six months, dude, lifting twenties is like your warm up. And it's the same thing in life with your job. So like if you stay where you are currently, twenty pounds will always be hard to lift. But if you work your face off and continue to grow, like that twenty pounds becomes really easy. And then forty pounds is just as painful as twenty used to be. And so that's kind of what the point I'm trying to get across is like you're not escaping that pain as a weightlifter. It's always gonna be there. Um and so it's just like you might as well get stronger and like try to do something great with the one life you have. Um if because the pain's not going anywhere. Going back to like how you got started. You had mentioned how you moved into the multifamily space. I, I kind of told you our background, how we got into the single family space and we quickly learned that multifamily was the way we wanted to go. But I have a lot of people that I know that aren't really making that, that quick transition to move from single family, let alone straight into it. Yeah, no, it, it definitely is intimidating, man. And it's it's definitely like not the easiest thing in the world. Um, but I will say that like it scales so much easier and it's kind of worth your time to spend 
grinding it out because doing one syndication, although it takes six to nine months, probably, especially your first one might even take longer than that might even take a couple of years. But um, once you actually get that, it's so much easier to run for the five to 10 years that you hold it. And also it's so much more lucrative for you personally, where uh, if you do a single family deal that you maybe can knock out in three months, you're still only probably going to cash flow like 200 to a thousand dollars a month on that all in, like if you do very well. Um, and so one single, one syndication, you can, number one, your acquisition fee is one to 2% of the purchase price. So that'll probably pay for your first year of living. And then you're also going to make based on your equity, uh, much more than 200 to a thousand. So it's kind of worth the time spent, even though it's a lot harder to get on the front end because it's not easy to close on a single family either, man. So you might as well get rewarded for it is kind of the way I was thinking about it. Awesome. And what were some of the rules that you played on that deal? Yeah, so I raised capital for that deal. Um, I found a partner in the Midwest who was looking for deals that were more affordable and definitely in a higher cap rate than the California market where I went to school and where I was networking to find capital partners. I was in the Bay Area, which is where a lot of wealthy people live in the country. Um, and so I basically was trying to find people who owned real estate in California and didn't like the laws and also didn't like that they were not really having any ability to buy anything in California because the prices, but mainly the laws. So I found a partner in the Midwest with more favorable tenant laws and also better pricing. Um, so I took expensive capital out of California into cheap real estate in the Midwest. And that was kind of the role I played. And um, and yeah, I can tell you guys a little bit about the process of like closing a syndication, if that'll help your listeners. I don't know. Is that something y'all are interested in? Yeah. Yeah. So like the first thing you have to do is raise the down payment. So you're you're... Getting a, you're coordinating like a, a federal backed um, Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac loan for 70 to 80% of the property's value. And then you're bringing the, the other remaining percentage as a down payment. You're raising that from private investors. So that's my job is raise that money from private investors. And then we have to secure the loan and we have to inspect a property just like a single family, um, unit by unit, get all the contracts, do all the due diligence. But the main difference is the financial due diligence is slightly different because it's a business that you're buying. So you have a profit and loss statement, a rent roll, um, and a more official spreadsheet of how the business is currently operating. And so your price decisions are made based on the income and the expenses that the property is experiencing, not the, um, like in a single family, it's a lot about sentiment and what people believe it's worth. But in multifamily, it's far more about what's the profitability of this building and then on what cap rate is that priced? And then that's your purchase price, not like um, it's less opinionated, it's more factual, and it's more kind of professional. You said that you saw that there's a problem in California regarding the laws. What problems do you tend to try to solve when it comes to your investors? Yeah, I mean, there's the competitive other investment options would be like the stock market or um, overfunded life insurance policies or something of that nature. The returns on those are going to be somewhere between, and I'll be super generous. Um, you could say like, oh, 5% with adjusted inflation, but I'll be generous and say like 7 to 9% per year in the stock market, um, maybe 10% if like you're crazy. But um, that's that's pretty much where you're going to be at. And, and sometimes it's much lower than that. And so in real estate, you're getting the uh, tax benefits that I'm not even going to really include in the numbers, but we're looking at like 15% IRR deals and 12% cash on cash and annual returns of annualized average annual returns of like 24% when you include the sale year and any refis. So that's the benefit is there's underlying value to the asset that you have equity in and the assets valuable because of something that's super simple to understand, which is people need a place to live um, <laughs> period. And that's not going anywhere. So that's kind of the benefit. Whereas it's not like, um, high growth stock where you have to kind of understand market share, um, how quickly people are using it, the time they're spending on it. Um, 
all, all the founders potential, all this other stuff. Whereas you're just basically saying, is this a place where people need to live? And that's easy to find from population statistics that are available in government resources. And then you also have things like comparable rents in the area, which is also public information. And then you have just simple factual, um, yeah, just simple fact people need a place to live. And so that's kind of where the underlying value is. And then there's a business on top of that underlying value. And that's where you can get a calculator out and figure out what the property's value is. And then from there, it just becomes about operating something that's a, that's necessary for everyone to have. And um, yeah, so the returns are more, stabi- more stable and also higher in most cases. And also there's tax benefits that I haven't touched on that can pretty much diminish most of, most or all of your tax burden um, per year, which is pretty crazy. Awesome. Yeah, it, it's definitely an inflation hedging kind of asset class, which tends to outbeat the stock market. And it's definitely a safer investment uh, because it's a real asset. So I definitely agree on those kind of key points that you touched on, not to mention the tax benefits that you get. Uh, but just kind of touching into, uh, you know, we know that, you know, you're, you're pretty young in this industry. And so when you first came across your first deal, and looking to raise capital, you know, meeting with either meeting with brokers. Um, I'm sure that there might have been some challenges due to either your age or, or your lack of experience in this industry. Do you mind touching base on how you might have overcame those and, and what tips you might give to someone who is looking to either do their first or that's kind of experiencing the same issues? Yeah, I think number one is just like it's a numbers game. People are going to say no to you, especially when you're young like us. Uh, I got so many no's, it's unreal. I couldn't even tell you how many no's I got. Um, and so it's just a, a matter of, of really reaching out to people, but um, also understanding the understanding the topic and under and having a command of the of the knowledge or like of the actual industry and what you're talking about, and also the underwriting that you're hopefully putting in front of them. Um, if you understand your stuff and you're competent and confident, then people will likely take your age less into consideration. There will always be people, there will always be people who take it into consideration and just will not invest with you because of your age period. You haven't had enough life experience and that's their prerogative and that's totally fine. Just move on to the next guy. Cause there is someone who wants to take a risk on you. Um, but understand they are taking a risk and understand that it is their money and have respect about that, but also really command the topic well. But that really should drive you to command the topic is because you understand someone's betting on you, man. And someone you are, they they are putting their money at risk with you to a degree. I mean, of course it's non-recourse and it can't come back on them, but you can still lose the property in their initial investment, which is not ideal, right? If someone's giving you a hundred thousand dollars, you want to give that money back to them at some point with interest. You don't want to just completely lose their money. So that should motivate you and drive you enough um, and keep you up at night enough to, to make you really learn the industry because you do realize that there's that responsibility on your back. 100%. And I saw that you were passionate about educating people on real estate investing. Um, how do you go about educating your investors before they invest with you? Yeah. So, I mean, even just per the SEC laws, you have to have a pre-existing relationship with someone before you can pitch them an investment. And so the main thing is like the first few meetings I have with someone are just educating them on why I'm so excited. Like, why did I drop out of multi, why did I drop out of college to pursue this industry? Like there must be something valuable about it that I understand. And so basically I'll just tell them the same reasons that convinced me to go into the space. And you guys should tell people the same reasons that took you out of single family and out of your routes and onto this space too, because you see there's value there. And so you're just basically educating people on that um, and getting to know them. And so that's typically one thing. I have 
several different presentations that I've built over the years of just helping people understand the basics of it and the tax benefits of it and how the whole process works, how things are valued, et cetera. And um, I think that the first couple meetings that you have with someone should definitely be centered around educating them because you're really never selling anyone. You're just kind of providing them an opportunity post-education. And if they're not willing to take the leap, then that's totally fine. But um, if they're educated properly, they should see the value. And really the property is the value. And you're just kind of like um, showing them that in a sense, like it's not really this big sales process. So are, have there been any common misconceptions that investors have had when you approach them and that you had to clear up? Yeah, I think like number one misconception is, or is really just people not understanding underwriting very well or um, kind of hearing underwriting as a very like high level thing and then not knowing. And I mean, really, if you're a passive investor, you shouldn't know it too well. But you should understand some of the base assumptions and and where the cap rates are currently in the market. So, for example, there's some like teaching out there on the internet that like says, you know, oh, I only buy eight caps and 10% cash and cash return kind of stuff. But ultimately, like those those articles were written in like 2010, 2011, 2012. And so, if you're not tracking cap rate movement and watching it be compressed over time into 2021, we're now in Austin, for example, we're around a five cap, four and a half cap. And so like, it's just understanding where pricing has moved because all assets are to a degree overvalued right now. Uh, that's just the case. And so you kind of have to be educated to understand where, like where prices have moved over the last decade and then not be using information learned in the early 2000s because a lot has changed and the industry has gotten so sophisticated with all of the lending requirements put on, rightly so, after 2008. There's a lot more hurdles to jump through, a lot more um, things to understand and a lot more smart capital moving into the space because the stock market took such a hit and smart people started to realize like, Hey, maybe we're not going to go all into real estate, but we're definitely going to increase our holdings in real estate. And now with COVID office space and hotels taking a hit. So now people in those spaces are also diversifying into multifamily and the number of like portfolio percentage for REITs last year went from like 35% multifamily to up over 50% to I think 53%. So people are definitely buying multifamily and people are definitely smarter and buying multifamily. So now the competition's higher, prices are getting squeezed and like just investors understanding that trajectory and not expecting 2004, 2010 prices and kind of understanding the industry movement, but also seeing the value in a low cap environment, which is a, this is a whole nother podcast, but like understanding that when the cap rates are low, the improvements you make are actually 10 X because the cap rates are low. Um, and that's just the value formula of NOI divided by cap rate equals purchase price. So if you raise the NOI on a lower cap rate, if you divide by a smaller number, you get a bigger number. So it's an inverse relationship, lower the cap rate, higher the purchase price. So yeah, it's harder to buy in a low cap rate environment, but if all things are set to stay low cap, then your improvements are actually magnified. So there's pros and cons for sure. Yeah. And I definitely agree with that. To kind of touch on that, you're a hundred percent right. You know, what we've been seeing is Due to COVID, office space has gone absolutely hammered. Retail has also done so poorly just because people are either staying at home or due to quarantine and things of that nature. So what we've seen is multifamily, it's still done the best compared to any other type of commercial asset and, and real estate in general. So although everything, all investment types are taking a hit, I agree. I think, uh, I mean, multifamily is definitely where a lot of bigger corporations are moving their money to just because they're starting to realize that regardless of what happens, people need a place to live. And, and that's typically the safest place for an investment. 
going back into the uh, syndication model, uh, I know that you've done a couple of deals. Do you have like a favorite aspect of the deal, whether that's the acquisition part of it, the asset management? Yeah, I, I personally don't like acquisition. I think for the obvious reasons that it's really difficult. And there's so many moving parts and there's so many people to get yeses from, whether that's your equity partners who say yes one day and no the other day. And um, and then you also have lending that's pretty difficult to coordinate, especially on value-add property, especially during COVID, especially with interest rates changing and lending requirements changing and reserve requirements changing. And so, uh, and then even negotiating with seller and, and doing the due diligence is stressful. So like the acquisition phase is definitely my least favorite. I think um, the operation stage, like post, like at the end of your, at the end of your renovation and towards into, into stabilization would probably be the best just because at that point you would ideally see the fruits of your labor on your renovation and start to see the, the community take shape in the vision that you had for it at the start, which is really what this is all about for me is like going in and buying a property that's being mistreated and the tenants are not being paid attention to um, and going and making a community worth living in and improving people's lives and seeing it go from where you bought it at with broken windows and kicked in balcony doors to actually being a property that you would live in and the people are coming around and happy to live there and you can just see that the energy has changed in the, in the complex. That's kind of the best point that probably happens like a year and a half into your ownership. But that first year and a half is pretty horrible. And so is the acquisition. But up to that point, I mean, it's definitely worth it if you get to that year and a half, Mark. Kind of going into the reason you're doing all of this in the first place, do you mind kind of touching on your why and what your purpose is? Yeah, of course. I mean, for me, it's it's all about just serving a community and bringing people together for a vision because ultimately, like if you're moving towards money, um, this may sound counterintuitive, but the amount of money that you think you want is actually going to be attained quicker than you probably think. And when you get to that point, you're like, well, how much more money do you need? And honestly, if you're making $60,000 a year, there's not much more that you can make above that that's going to really add to your happiness and really change your life in a real like noticeable way. You'll really just get acclimated to the amount of money you make. And so if you're really doing it for money and you work really hard for five to 10 years, you'll probably make that amount of money if you really work for it. But then when you get there, it's so hollow at that point. You're like, you know, why did I work so hard for this end goal that was that's here before you know, and it's not that valuable or really fulfilling. So for me, it's, it's, um, you know, as a Christian, I'm trying to always, you know, serve the kingdom in that sense. And work's definitely a good thing. It's one of the only things we can do a lot of and not get worn down. And so there is definitely an aspect of, of work that's good. Um, you just can't make it your ultimate thing and you have to be focused on service as difficult as that is. But I have noticed my life gets a lot better when I don't think about myself as counterintuitive as that is also. And so for me, it's really just been about not building the biggest company, not having the biggest units, not making the most profit possible, but putting the people before the profit, putting the tenants first and making business decisions that are, you know, centered around how can we put the tenants first? How can we put people before profit? How can we make this the best possible place for people to work and the best possible place for people to live? Because ultimately, one of my main passions outside of the tenants is just my employees and making sure that there's so many people who are unfulfilled in their work and don't feel like they're being utilized and feel like they go to work. No one notices them. No one pays attention to the efforts they put forth. No one sees what they're doing and no one's really utilizing them to their full potential. And that like really sucks the life out of people. And so my main thing as a leader is just like I want people to feel like they're growing, being paid attention to and like they're actually getting the most out of themselves because that's really um, that's just something I hate to see. And I've watched a lot of people close to me go through that in their life where they're just not being used. So for me as a leader, like employees, definitely wanting them to have a great quality of life. And then first and foremost, like tenants having great quality of life as well. That's kind of why I do it. 
so to follow up on that kind of like motto we like to live by is um, you are the sum, the sum of the people you surround yourself with. And so just kind of follow up on what you mentioned about your why. Have you found that you've surrounded yourself with people that share that same why? Yeah, there's a really great podcast by a guy named Craig Rochelle. It's a leadership podcast. He had um, Dave Ramsey on it not too long ago. And um, he was saying a great thing that I totally agree with, which is like, you can't overemphasize your values. You can't overemphasize the principles of your company. And so that right there is something that like does guarantee that the people around you are who you want them to be because you're constantly... Um, you're constantly telling people what your values and principles are. And so, you know, that's something that me and my partner have come up with. We have values that we repeat constantly. We share the same values. And also like, this is super difficult, especially when you're starting out, but saying no a lot and not working with people that don't share those values and being willing to not be greedy and realize that, yeah, you're going to take a haircut, but it's not worth working with people who don't share your vision because no amount of money is worth compromising those values. And you have to say no a lot. I mean, I have a coaching program where we say no to a lot of applicants just because if they're not the people we want in the com- who are going to add value to the other students, then we're cheapening the whole program for everyone. And so we have to say no, even though I'll make money on their admission, if they're going to cheapen the value of the program for everyone else who's already in, that's such a disservice to the whole program. And so I don't let everyone in. I have a strict application prog- process. People are interviewed by me and students. We make sure that people aren't getting in who don't share the values and don't have clear goals and are motivated. And then same thing with capital partners or any sort of property management company we work with. They absolutely have to have the same values as us. And we'll turn away people who are big investors or people who will sign on our loans because they don't share the same values. And that's super hard to do, especially if you overvalue money. And that's why you have to value something else more. And whatever that is for you is important to figure out. But for me, I can't make money, number one, because then you make just really bad decisions for a long period of time. And that gets you in a really dangerous spot. So for me, it's like the thing I learned the hard way was like, say no way more. Like saying no should almost be your default to working with people. And they should almost like have to really convince you to say yes. If you're already like, oh, I just want to work with anyone. I just want to get a deal done. You are going to make some huge mistakes that you wish you just never, ever went down that alleyway. I think it's important for our listeners to also have an idea as to what financial freedom and what real estate can give people. And so I would love it if you could just maybe explain a little more about that. Yeah, I, I personally had a bad experience with school growing up, especially the public school system. Um, I thought I was a really dumb kid until I was about 20, 20 years old, honestly. Like my whole public school all the way through high school and into college was just people not necessarily um, rewarding me for any of the things I was good at. And the school system just not really even testing for the things that I was good at um, and just feeling inadequate and, and put down by teachers and um yeah, I'm, I'm definitely a rebellious individual, but there is a lot of leadership underlying a rebellious personality, and no one ever really recognized that in me. And I also felt like just the curriculum wasn't teaching people valuable things, period, on its face, regardless of my experience. The curriculum just isn't what it needs to be. And so for me, one of my main passions is putting the majority of my wealth into some sort of an alternative for other kids or someone who's working on an alternative for school. Um, whether that's an alternative college or an, an improvement to the public school system, whatever that looks like, that's just something that I'm extremely passionate about because I don't think people are getting what they need to get from school. Even the people who are succeeding in school, they're checking the box and they're not really getting the internal growth that they need, that we need to be giving the children in this country and also the young adults in this country and the future of this country need to be getting a level of internal growth that's important because even if you're checking the boxes and getting good grades and going to the right schools, you're still not growing into the person you need to become. You may have the credentials of the person you think you want to be, but you're not that person and that's the real fault of the school system, not putting measures in place to teach people 
real skills that go deep and are tested not based on just the memorization of a certain topic. And yeah, this is something I get into for a long time, but I think a lot of people share the sentiment of not necessarily overly critical of the school system, maybe not as much as I am, but definitely an obvious um, need for improvement and modernization of the school system for sure. Definitely uh, agree on that topic. And I kind of wanted to touch base. Um, I also think that financial education, uh, you see a lot of people, you know, they, they might do well for themselves and go out and, you know, get a, a job uh, in a high corporate occupation in which they make good money, but then they don't, they're never taught how to use the money and how you can potentially put that money and make that money work harder for you than you work for it. So I know that that's, that's a big problem that a lot of people are not taught and um, it's kind of like a, a kept secret. So I definitely agree with everything that you said, as well as financial education is one huge problem that we have here as well. Absolutely. Yeah, and to kind of go off of that, so I, I think that it pretty much comes down to who you hang out with. Say that is that's on a soccer team that you were on. It makes it a lot less likely that you're going to chase that entrepreneurship if everyone's kind of going towards the same goal. And kids that were in high school, since uh, you know that's kind of my background, I was in school for a year, and a lot of the kids are all kind of doing the same thing. They're joining Greek life. And that's, that's, that's a thing that is pretty much the norm. And until I started joining different circles like real estate, I started seeing, okay, well, I started reading these books and, and listening to these podcasts. And that kind of opens your mindset, which allows you to grow, right? So my question to you, do you mind going into how it's helped you develop as a person and your business? And if you don't mind touching base on your inner circle. Yeah, I think the most important thing is to, to just try to work on yourself and to become the person that you want to spend time with. Um and I mean, that's such a that's such a truth for any sort of friendship that you're looking to have, whether that's business, personal or romantic or whatever it is. You're not going to find the people that you're looking for as far as networking, unless you look like them and kind of act like them already. Like if you've done the work on yourself, too, and that just comes from good habits, which means waking up early, um, reading consistently, maybe journaling to flush out some of your thoughts, focusing on the positive things in your life, um, really simple, basic things. They seem really ridiculous, but over time becomes a really strong um, muscle to build. If you can develop a reaction to events that's positive always and always at least looking for a positive outcome or at least looking for a positive solution to an outcome, like that is that is such a valuable thing to have. And you can only develop that over time. And that really comes, it starts with just saying what you're thankful for in a day and trying to find the things that are good in your life. Over time, it gets to situations where um, you get into a position where you think something's going to happen and you're really, really, really hoping for it to, and then it doesn't happen and being able to not completely capitulate and break down and try to find something positive about that and understand, all right, well, it's all part of this plan and like, it's going to be okay. And there's this benefit to it. And maybe I'm being protected from this and like, this is great. I'm still going to push forward. I'm still going to persevere because that mindset is super critical to perseverance, especially when you get into some harder arenas and people, uh, and, and things you kind of fall from higher. It definitely, it's definitely necessary to have a positive outlook and that kind of stuff happens from habits, small habits that are really boring and insignificant and seem like not a big deal, but over time they become a massive deal. And so before networking can even really happen and you can get into the circles that you want to get into, it really just becomes like, you need to be someone that would add value to those people and that those people would want to hang out with. And so like your first order of business is to improve yourself and small, small habits um, over time and watch what happens. Cause you'll start to see that those doors open for you. You can't really control that kind of stuff. You just have to control who you become and you'll see that your life opens up a lot. It's crazy. 
going into our last express round, I'm going to ask five questions. Uh, it's going to be pretty quickly. You can tailor it towards business or personal life. My first question is, do you have a daily habit or routine? Yeah, I, I definitely do. I think um, waking up at 530 in the morning every morning is huge for me. Um, I read the word. I read the Bible every morning as well, which is super important as well. So I spend 530 to 7 a.m. every morning um, reading, journaling, breaking down. So right now I'm doing like a proverb study. So I read a proverb a day and I break down each line and uh, try to meditate and, and seek out if I can get some wisdom from that kind of text. And I've noticed that if you can start the day with something like that, you start to see the rest of your day through the prism of what you did in the morning. And that can, then you're just getting insights throughout the day as you continue on because you're looking through the prism of whatever you learned in the morning. And so that's super valuable for me, but really like working out and exercising is also important. I track everything. So I track what I eat. I track what I lift. I track my exercise. I track all my runs, I track my heart rate data. I track everything because I've found that tracking, whatever you track improves. And so if I can, take really good data in that area of my life. It tends to take really good accounting in my business and really good personal accounting and personal finance and really good everything. So everything starts to be tracked and it starts in small areas and starts to bleed over because you're building an overall discipline. And um, so, yeah, for me, it's it's really just waking up early, reading, journaling, and um, having a pretty strict, just whatever you're doing, fit, fitness or whatever activity you like, maybe it's playing your guitar, just being extremely disciplined about how you go about that is, is super important. Awesome. Did you use those habits? Is that kind of how you reached the Division One level? Because I played soccer, and I would say I could have been more disciplined when I was playing, but it seems like you've obviously become a very disciplined person now. Dude, I wish. I would have been so much better. Um, I always worked extremely, agree, extremely hard. <laughs> yeah, no, dude, I totally agree. I mean, I, I, I definitely was more disciplined than most, for sure, as a kid, but, like, Really, I just have like a really crazy work ethic just because of the way I grew up and the, the way my parents behaved and the things we had to go through as a kid. So like I've always really pushed super, super hard on things, but I was definitely very erratic and very up and down. And I relied a lot on natural talent and I had a huge ego, which I am slowly chipping away at now, hopefully. Um, you know, you all can be the judge of that. But either way, like at that point in my life, I just that was kind of, you know, the B's and E's. I think I was the only one from my town to really go to D1, other than my buddy who went to SMU, but we trained together every day. And so we kind of helped push each other. But I will say that, um, yeah, I mean, I could have been a lot better if I had followed the habits that I had now. Part of the reason of me developing all of this was the pain of like my Division One soccer career not being what I wanted it to be because of the fact that I saw that I wasn't putting in the habits. I actually lived, my roommate, my uh, freshman year summer during preseason was a guy who's now the goalkeeper for uh, the New York Red Bulls. He got drafted in the second round in 2019. Um, so it was like watching him in the summer train more than me as a goalkeeper and get better foot skills than me as a goalkeeper, going to the futsal courts after practice, going lifting after practice, working this on techers and little like touch drills and waking up early and hitting long balls and I'm over here like partying and doing nonsense. And I came as a freshman with probably more like technical skills than probably anyone on the roster, but just horrible work ethic, didn't understand the game, had a bad attitude and like tactically just wasn't there. Even though technically I was there, just tactically wasn't there. And I just watched like me go from a really great player to a very average player, to a bench player, to a forgotten player. And like, that was a big wake up call for me where I was like, Dude, you had the potential to like really make something of your career here and you just you you didn't have the discipline. So for me, that's been absolutely a huge part of, of my development for sure. Yeah, I can relate a lot to that story. Um, so do you have a favorite book? If you have one for personal life and one that you would like for real estate or business in general? Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, 
The book that's probably changed my life the most would probably definitely be the Bible and Rich Dad Poor Dad. But if I had to say like favorite books that people haven't heard of that will hopefully like be able to add to your reading list and add some value to your life, um, I think The Compound Effect by Darren Hardy is a really good book. It talks a lot about how doing the small things actually is more valuable than you think. And that can allow you to focus and find some joy in doing those small things right every day because you understand what it's going to lead to. Because um, I I know it's really difficult to like think you're you're winning and succeeding in life when you're just making your bed every morning or you're just you know tracking macros for one day like you're like yeah this isn't going to lead to much but if you read that book you start to understand the math of how it will lead to a lot and how important those things are and how really that's all that you can do um, so that adds a ton of value and for business books dude the E Myth is a huge book the E Myth entrepreneurial myth it um, teaches you a lot about how to work on your business, not in your business. And as entrepreneurs, we're people who work really hard. And sometimes we can work actually over the, over the edge and too hard. And then you're in your business and you're letting people do their jobs and you're doing too much work. Actually, as weird as that sounds, you're working too hard. You're working too much. You're getting in people's way and you're being inefficient. And that book talks a lot about how to set systems in place to where you can stay out of your employees way, let people thrive and do the things that are most valuable to your business. And so, yeah, those are, those are two huge books that not most, not everybody's heard of. Yeah, I just want to touch on the compound effect. I haven't read the E-Myth, and I'll definitely add that to my list, but the compound effect, uh, that book is, like you said, it kind of teaches you about delayed gratification. A lot of people are in it for, you know, right now, but you need to know, realize that 1% every single day compounded over 365 days is 365, you know? So just doing those little small things can, that's how you chip away to add the big things, and, and a lot of people... Um, don't realize that, you know, delayed gratification is the greatest, um, you know, thing to wait for. So I read, I read, I listened to the E-Myth on audiobook and I read the other two. So I definitely agree. Those are awesome books. Do you have a favorite piece of advice or quote, whichever you prefer that has, you know, helped you a lot throughout your entrepreneurial journey? Man, trying to think of a specific quote. I, I, I mean, for me, a specific idea that's definitely had a lot of, um, a lot of uh, impact on me has just been, focusing on what you really want from your life and understanding that that might not be um, the money and success that you think is going to bring you happiness and just understanding that like you can be happy now and ultimately like you're not ever going to be happier or more content than you are currently right now in your life as weird as that sounds like you won't be happier when x y or z happens in your life when you get the new job you get the house you get the car you get the success you get the girl you get the whatever you have the kids you have the life you absolutely won't be any happier than you are currently because happiness is like a habit and a skill that you develop and you can only start developing a bit now. And it really comes from being content with what you have now in this moment. And so that's been huge for me because I achieved a lot of things in my life early on and then realized like, I still feel exactly how I did. <laughs> like, what the heck is going on? Like, it, it definitely wears off so fast. And then I realized like, man, I got to like develop happiness and like understand how to create it and like nurture it and be disciplined about it because it's really about right now. Like I remember signing that division one, uh, like offer was like more exciting than my parents than it was to me. I was like, Oh, I kind of expected this to happen. Like it doesn't feel that cool. I'm not really that excited about it. And that's cause like, you know, I wasn't taking, I wasn't taking in the real aspect of like how rare that is, how lucky and how blessed and how grateful I should be for that thing. I was just like expecting the thing itself to give me all the happiness and not realizing that like you yourself with your own perspective have to create that happiness in every moment. And like, that's a skill you have to develop right now, no matter what your circumstances are. Um, so don't look for external things to change your internal state. Cause it's not how it works. 100%. Um, next question 
is do you happen to have a role model or someone or a figure that you look up to that has kind of just been something that you always learn from throughout your journey? Yeah, um, I'm a big, uh, one of my, the people who is in close to my life, I'll just give a, a specific example, is a guy named Terrence Doyle. He's a investor out of Denver and he has a vertically integrated property management company. Um, he spends a lot of time with his kids. He's a good Christian. He donates a lot to charity and he also doesn't have like a super flashy lifestyle, even though he's obviously a very wealthy individual. I just like the idea of someone being able to have a lot of success and decouple that from needing to show everybody else. Um, I, I find that to be like such a high level of character to be able to really be a massive, massively wealthy and successful person and have ne no need for anyone to ever know and live like just like everybody else and prioritize your family, prioritize the things that are most important, prioritize serving other people and spending very little time thinking about yourself and very little time thinking about how cool it is that you've done all this and just all your time thinking about other people and how to, cause that's really where happiness comes from. And yeah, he's just been a great example to watch him not compromise on those values, even as he gets more and more and more successful. It's, um, it's just really, that's something that's awesome to watch. Last thing, if someone wanted to reach out to you, where can they reach you at? I'd say my website's probably the best place, kylemarcott.com. Um, you have a ton of free resources on there. Also access to my training program where you can, you know, sign up and apply if you want. Um, it is a slightly rigorous process. So if you want to just do the free resources, that's fine, but it's all able to be found on uh, kylemarcott.com. I'll make sure to have that in the show notes. Um, Kyle, we really do appreciate your time. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you guys for having me. We definitely appreciate your time and we'll, we'll definitely be in touch soon. Awesome. Thanks y'all. Thank you for listening to the Real Life Monopoly podcast with the Donis Brothers. If you want to learn more about what we do, make sure to visit our website, www.donisinvestmentgroup.com. And if you aren't already, make sure to follow us on all platforms at Donis Brothers. Let's be great today. Have a good one.